Well, good morning, church. Thank you for that lovely prayer. Thank you, team, for uh, leading us in worship this morning. As you hear me often say, we continue in our worship as we come around God's word this morning. Can you imagine, can you imagine living with a secret that if anyone found out the truth, you'd be finished? Can you imagine living with a secret that if anyone found out the truth, you'd be finished? Well, that was the case of a man named John Corcoran. John Corcoran, during grade school, never learned to read or write, but since he caused a lot of trouble in school, he kept getting promoted to the next grade. He got to high school, and he mastered new skills, and he said this, I started cheating by turning in other people's papers. I dated the valedictorian and ran around with college prep kids. I couldn't read words, but I could read the system, and I could read people. He received an athletic scholarship to Texas Western College and cheated his way through there as well, getting a degree in education, of all things. Somehow he got a job as a teacher, and for the next 17 years, he taught in high school without being able to read or write. He says, what I did was I created an oral and visual environment. There, there wasn't the written word in there. I've all, always had two or three teacher's assistants in each class to do board work and read bulletin. Finally, he left the teaching and uh, became a real estate developer. Later in life, he learned to read and write, and he became an advocate for better educational systems. Now, in a sense, we're all like John Corcoran. Most of us don't have to fake reading and writing, but we live our lives trying to persuade ourselves, trying to persuade other people, and trying to even persuade God himself that we are okay, that we are good, decent people. Deep down inside, though, we have a growing awareness that it's not true. All right, look with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3 this morning, Romans chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 20, and uh, yes, we kind of have some more difficulty to work through here, but it's really very important that we take time to do so. Now, in Romans 3, 9 through 20, many people don't really want to believe what's written here because the implications of it are shocking. Now, I remind you that this passage we're looking at uh, this morning falls within the bigger section that I've talked about before, the bigger section in Romans that began all the way back in chapter 1, verse 18, and will carry all the way through verse 20 of chapter 3. And, and one of the major questions that the Bible answers is, what is wrong with humanity? What is wrong with the human race? Well, if we only had this section in Romans, beginning with 118 to what we'll finish up today in 320, we could adequately answer that question, what's wrong with humanity? But the good news is the Bible also provides us with an answer to a second very critical question, what has God done about it? What has God done about it? 
And as we'll see as we come to uh, Romans 3.21, that will carry us all the way through uh, chapter 8 of Romans, God's solution gets to the core of the problem. It answers the problem of sin. It's the gospel that changes everything. And although I've touched on it along the way, beginning next week, we'll really start to unpack that. Now, in previous weeks, I have uh, noted that the scene here of this bigger section is one of a courtroom, a courtroom. And as we come to Romans 3, 9 through verse 20, this is Paul's closing argument, if you will. It really is the summation of all that went before it. It's, it's Paul's nail in the coffin as he drives home his point of God's case against all people. And Paul, the writer of these words, speaks as a prosecuting attorney for the Lord, and he, and he places all humanity on a level playing field before God Almighty, the perfect judge. Now, as we look at this section this morning in chapter 3, verse 9 through 20, there are going to be two repeated words in this section. One word that will jump out as a repeated word is the word none, N-O-N-E. The NIV has it, no one, and it's, uh, it appears four times. The second repeated word is the word all, all. It's, it's repeated three times. And what's, what is significant about those two repeated words is that those two words, none and all, make it clear that there are no exceptions to what he's been talking about when it comes to the problem of humanity. All right, my headings for this morning is inconvenient truth, insulting reality, and then inescapable judgment. All right, my first setting is inconvenient truth. Now, I'll just tell you up front, this is where I'm going to spend most of our time together on this point, which is why it got the title Inconvenient Truth, all right? So, so if you get a little nervous, like, oh, you're spending a lot of time on point one, we've got two more to go, relax. Purposely, intentionally, I'm spending most of our time right here on inconvenient truths. Now, you might recall... You might recall the 200, uh, to 2006 documentary, An Inconvenient Truth. It was a film uh, intended to wake up Americans to the real and present danger of the coming catastrophic results of human-caused global warming. Now, many of the predictions that, the, that were mentioned in 2006 film were to be fulfilled in 10 years. I think it would have been better to call it a convenient fabrication. <laughs> Or convenient opportunity. I know, I'll tell you how I really feel, right? Convenient opportunity for Al Gore and the others cashed in big time on the gullibility of the American people. Now, <laughs> before you send me that email on your take on global warming or what's been renamed climate change, we do have a God-given responsibility to care for God's creation. We do. And if there are matters to learn as to how to better manage his creation, then we ought to learn from that. My real reason for bringing this up is to introduce you to an inconvenient truth. Now, by inconvenient truth, I mean this. It's a truth that people do not like because of accepting it, they'll have to change their beliefs. 
Let me say that again. An inconvenient truth, by that I mean a truth that people generally speak and do not like because of accepting it. By accepting it, they'll have to change their beliefs. And so the answer to what's wrong with humanity is found in one word here this morning. It's a three-letter word filled with profound meaning. Verse 9, Romans 3, 9. What shall we conclude then? Here's his closing statement. Are we any better? Not at all. We have all already made the charge. Jews, Gentiles alike, are all under sin. There's the three-letter word. And in a world that universally wants to accept that humanity is basically good, to be told that we're sinful is a very inconvenient truth. Yet the idea of universal depravity, listen, is under constant threat. More destructive, however, than a culture which denies universal depravity are preachers who, who, who soften it. This is not a popular message today. Yet this truth of our sinful condition must hold up in the world in which we live today. Because speaking about truth, about, about speaking truth about sin, uh, and sinful conditions, it sounds cynical and it sounds judgy precisely because sin has everything to do with what? Sadness and sorrow and judgment and death. But listen, ignoring the truth of original sin and that we are inherently sinful does not do anything to solve it. We're stuck if we want to ignore that very foundational truth of what we believe. Now in 1973, a world-renowned psychiatrist, Carl Menninger, produced a book by that name, Whatever Became of Sin. And in his book, the doctor projected the day would come when sin would no longer be an element of the human vernacular. He speculated that the explanation of sin and wrongdoing would be replaced by rationalizations excusing individual accountability. He went on in 1973, Manager predicted the term sin would be replaced with words like illness, disorder, dysfunction, syndrome, etc. He said the human condition would be excused as a product of biochemistry, environment, experience, and trauma. He projected that even crime would go unpunished as criminal activity would be justified and minimized as the result of some medical abnormality for which one could not be held responsible. According to Menager's projection, the day was approaching, he said, when practically everyone would be considered sick and their conduct pardonable. No longer would there be any liability for human error, choice, and willful conduct. Everyone would be innocent, vindicated through biology, psychiatry, and humanistic reasoning. Wow, was he off, huh? I say the good doctor was a good prophet. Now, my point. My point isn't to say there's no such thing as mental illness. Please hear me on that. Mental health issues must be considered. They must be addressed in the world in which we live today. My concern, however, is our belief about the doctrine of sin. If our starting, if our starting place is that people are basically good, then when wrong is committed, 
It couldn't be his or her fault. In order for man to act badly, there has to be another reason. But if we believe what the Bible says about sin, that all of human race is alike, and that we are corrupted by the power of sin, it has very different implications. So you see, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, good or bad, we are all alike. We're all under the power of sin. And Paul then goes on to support that claim as we come down to verse 10, and then down, really down through verse 18, Paul strings uh, several, uh, together several Old Testament passages to make his point. He quotes uh, seven different passages. He quotes from the book of Psalms, Ecclesiastes, and Isaiah. But follow along. I'm going to pick it up in verse 10, and I'm going to go down to verse 12. He's reaching to the Old Testament now, verse 10. As it is written, what's written? There is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. And we mentally add, except me. How many people are religious? None. 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 There are no exceptions. And you go, well, you mean, you mean that, that, that pastor I have up on a pedestal? You mean that hardworking, decent neighbor of mine? You, you mean our cute little precious grandchild? Sinful? No exceptions. You mean that person who serves at the soup kitchen every week? You mean that person who has remained faithful in marriage for 50 years? You mean that, that kind soul who gives money to charity or gives money to the church or gives money to some religious institution? They're not, right, no, they're not righteous, no exceptions. You mean that person who finally stopped drinking or that, that person who finally got his act together or that person who said, I'm going to start going to church now or, or that person who changed his ways? He's not an exception to this. No, not one is righteous. No, not one is good. No one. No one does good ever. No one ever seeks God. This all sounds a little over the top. Now it's critical. We think here with some precision. Is this saying we never get it right? Is this suggesting that no one ever does a good thing? No, there's good in the world. This is not saying that people are incapable of ever doing good. There are such things as virtuous acts. It's always better to do good rather than evil. It's better to give those in need rather than spend all that you have on yourself. It's better to forgive someone rather than to retaliate. It's better to be kind than to be cruel. But no one always does good. No one habitually and consistently does only good things. And if truth be told, often even in the good we do, our motives for doing it is what we can get out of it. We may do right things, we just do them for ourselves. But no one doing good or no one seeking God, listen, it speaks to what's going on inside, what's going on in the heart. It addresses the direction of, of people's lives. Because without God changing your heart, 
Even your seeking after God has more to do with seeking after what God can give you than it does seeking after God himself. Like, see, people without Christ, they seek answers to prayer. People without Christ, they, they seek after God's blessings or, or, or seek perhaps after some answer to the mess they're in. But are they really seeking after God? Was it what God can give them? Now, Paul here, he, he, he's just really messing with our categories. We like to think that there are bad people and there are good people. And of those two lists, we like to think of ourselves as being on the correct side of that overall. And in our categories, we look at the other side. We don't say we're no better. We say we're a lot better. This is a category buster. But when we consider that someone else's sin that might be different from my sin, am I really any better? Do I have a right to look down on others? Now, it goes beyond my purposes for this morning. But let me just, I need to say this. The, the Bible does speak of degrees of sin and that the consequences vary according to the wrong. When we talk about the playing field being level, I don't mean there's no degrees in that. If I'm going to you know, hate someone, I might as well murder them. No, that doesn't make any sense. The Bible speaks of degrees of sin. Matter of fact, the principle of eye for eye, tooth for tooth speaks to varying degrees of sin. So suffice it to say that this does not suggest at all that the playing, since the playing field is level, there can never be any judgment on someone else's wrong. It's not saying that. This does not say that all sin is the same, but rather that we all have sinned, all. Romans 3.23, that we're going to spend more time on next week. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, when we put our righteousness up to God's standard, we fall short. Now, we like to measure down, not measure up. And what I mean by that is we like to measure down by finding someone worse than I am, and then I can say, well, I'm not that bad. It's certainly better than that person. And we can always find someone worse than us. So it works. But we need to measure up. And to measure up is see God's standard and realize we fall short of that standard. All of us. See, God does not judge on the point system. There's an old tale that speaks of a man who died and he faced the angel Gabriel at heaven's gates. Bear with me on this one, okay? The angel said, Here's how this works. You need 100 points to make it into heaven. You tell me all the good things you've done, and I'll give a certain number of points for each of them. When you get to 100 points, you get in. Okay, the man said, I was married to the same woman for 50 years, and I never cheated on her. Gabriel replied, that's wonderful. That's worth three points. Three points, said the man incredulously. Okay, well, I attended church all my life. I supported its ministries with my money and service and gave us this. Terrific, that's worth one point. One point, said the man with his eyes beginning to show a little bit of panic here. Well, how about this? I opened up a shelter for the homeless in my city. I fed needy people by the hundreds during holidays. 
The angel said, fantastic. That's good for two more points. Two points, cried the man in desperation. At this rate, the only way I'll get to heaven is by the grace of God. Come on in, said Gabriel. (laughs) Now, the point is this, whatever you think of that crazy story. Because of the great disproportion between our best works and God's standard of holiness and perfection, our bargaining chips have no acceptance with God. Let me say that again. Because of the great disproportion between our best works and God's standard of holiness and perfection, our bargaining chips have no acceptance with God. Inconvenient truth. I know. Shakes you up a little. Second point, insulting reality. And right now you're glad that they're not all even of these points. Insulting reality. Now as we come to verse 13, there's a list of several accusations to support his statement that we are all alike and that we're all under sin. Now verses 13 through 18, when I read it, you'll see it's not a very flattering picture of the human race. It's rather insulting to those who hold to the belief we're basically good. Verse 13, their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers is on their lips, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. Now notice with me the cause of all these behaviors. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the starting place. That's what sets it all in motion. There's no fear of God before their eyes. A healthy fear of God. But what this is saying here is that the reality of sin's potential, it's showing us the, sin, the reality of sin's potential that's in our hearts. We may not have acted out in these horrific ways, but the potential is there because the heart is desperately wicked. And I can't believe some of the thoughts I have sometimes. Would I really do that? Probably not. Something would stop me. But I can't believe the thought's even there. You know what I'm talking about. Deep down inside, every human being, there's an inclination to evil. There's a fascination with the darkness of sin. There's stuff inside that others may not know about. Mark Twain said it this way. He said, we're all like the moon. We have a dark side. Now, to be told that we're basically good doesn't really line up, does it, with what we really know about ourselves. We're aware of stuff in here. We're aware of our selfish motives. And like the illiterate Corcoran who who fooled everyone around him that he could read and write, deep inside, though, he knew it wasn't true. And we might be able to fool others by acting in line with an acceptable norm in the Christian community or, or using the right language of Christianese and we say all the right things. And everyone goes, oh, wow, I'm impressed with them. But we know better. I'm reminded of the elderly man who was at a social event and each time he spoke to his wife, he'd call her endearing names like honey, darling, sweetheart, my love. The couple had been married over 60 years. A younger man had observed him all throughout the evening. He was very impressed with this man. And he said to the elderly man, you know, it's so sweet that after all these years you've been married, you still call your wife those loving pet names. The elderly man hung his head and he said, truth be told, for the life of me, I can't remember her name. (laughs) 
He fooled a lot of people. At least he came clean. But you see, even if we're able to fool others, others might be impressed with us. We know what's going on inside. And whatever the pretenses, we have a growing awareness. It's not true. Because inside, there's that guilt. Where do we go with that guilt? Now, you can Google. This always wants to respond when I say that. You can Google how to stop feeling guilty. Right? You can do that. And you'll find all kinds of help such as uh, uh, do something good for somebody else or do something good for yourself or practice self-forgiveness or practice self-compassion and on and on it goes. And some of these suggestions may be helpful. But at best, in terms of the guilt, it fixes it temporarily. Several years ago, there was a, a product that came out called disposable guilt bags. You can find them in, in many different stores. Disposable guilt bags. It consisted... Uh, of, of a set of 10 ordinary brown bags on which were printed the following instructions. Place the bag securely, securely over your mouth. Take a deep breath and blow all your guilt out into this bag and then dispose of the bag immediately. I probably need more than 10. And the amazing thing is, it, it reported 2,500 kits would have been sold very quickly at almost $3 a kit. I mean, wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be great if we could just dispose of our guilt that easily? We just blow our guilt away. Ah, I feel so much better now. Unfortunately, there is nothing on this earth powerful enough in itself to dispose of our guilt. We cannot fix ourselves, which is fix ourselves, which is what many are trying to do. Somebody even suggests, you know, a better way to deal with guilt? Just do away with it. Don't have guilt. One psychiatrist said it this way. He said, guilt is a wasted emotion that only results in self-stigmatization. Get rid of it. The inconvenient truth is that we have all sinned. And we have guilt there. We all fall short of the glory of God. We know it. We can never meet God's standard of righteousness. That is reality. And as insulting as that may be, isn't it better to be told that reality than someone who just gives you some placebos just to make you feel better? All right, I got to go to inescapable judgment. All right, inconvenient truth. Insulting reality, inescapable judgment. Look at chapter 3 now, verse 19. Now we know. Whatever the law says, it says to those under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Now, the word accountable there means liable. It means liable for punishment. Who's liable for punishment? The whole world, all people. I'm sure you've heard it said, and I certainly have. I've had people come up and say, you know, when I stand before God, I have a few things I'm going to say to them. No, they won't. Did you catch the middle of that verse? It said, every mouth may be silenced. The charges against him are brought forth. They will have nothing to say but guilty. I know I've shared with you before about the time I was stopped for speeding in upstate New York. I know you always find, most of you find that hard to believe. And I was pastoring, as while I was pastoring there in New York, good combination, well, in New York, you don't just send in your fined amount. You have to appear in local court. You have to go. 
So I showed up in court with a room full of all these bad people who broke the law. Wait, 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 that was me. Anyway, when the judge read the charge against me, he asked, now, Mr. Green, I really was sweating he was going to ask what I did for a living. Mr. Green, on the charge of speeding, how do you plead? I answered, guilty. The judge replied, no, 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 you don't want to say that. I went, but I am. I'm guilty of speeding. And well, he talked me out of it in order to reduce my fine. So I then was okay with it. But you see, no one will be able to stand before the holy judge and say, not guilty. No, the answer to your guilt is not, you're not going to be told, no, 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 if you say guilty, don't say that. Don't say that. No, 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 no. No, that, no, you're all right. That's not, he's not going to say that. See, in order to receive what God wants to give us, it begins by us saying, I'm guilty. This acknowledgement is actually a good thing. Because we come to verse 20, therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. You see, the problem of guilt is not just a problem of how to feel better, but how to be right with God. That's what we're after. How can I be right with God? And based on this passage, if you allow me this, when it speaks of it, your mouth being silenced, I'm going to say, let's bring that to the present. How can I be right with God? Stop talking. Stop making excuses. Stop talking about your own good work. Stop talking about you're better than the. Just be quiet. Shut up. <laughs> it's only as we shut up spiritually we're ready for what God wants to give us. Because we're going to be silent that day. And as long as you keep talking, you're going to just come up with excuses. You're going to blame shift. You're going to speak ways you'll do better the next time and how you can turn it around. No, silence. John Kirstner said it this way. He said, because of the gospel, the way to God is wide open. No sin can hold them back because God has offered justification to the ungodly. Nothing now stands between the sinner and God. Now get this. But the sinner's good works. It gets in the way. He goes on to say, all they need is need. All they must have is nothing. See, as long as you keep saying, I can do this, and I'll stop doing that, and I'll, get be- I'll do better the next time, and you can't receive the cure. Until you realize you can't fix yourself, are you then ready Until you do that, you're not ready for what God offers, his righteousness. And that's what he says in Romans 3.21 that we're going to really look at next week. But in 3.21, we've got to touch on it. But now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. The great turning point in Romans is chapter 3, verse 21, and we are getting there. But do you see it? We've got to believe in Christ, not trust in our good works for our righteousness. Now, I want you to grab a hold of this truth. I said, we'll come back to this verse, but grab a hold of this truth for now. Bottom line, if you will. In the gospel, we discover we are far worse than we thought and far more loved than we ever dreamed. In the gospel, we discover we're far worse off than we thought and far more loved than we ever dreamed. See, to be told we're sinful is an inconvenient truth. But an equally profound truth is that there's an answer 
a solution, a cure. God provided a way for us through Christ. See, to be told we're sinful, that's actually a good thing. Because isn't there something deeply satisfying about knowing we're sinful and flawed and that the one who knows that still says, I love you? Here's the thing, as Brian Chappell puts it. The message that our gracious God loves us fully, despite our sin, necessarily implies that he does not account our good works as the reason that he must show his affection. Listen, you're living there right now, believer. You're going, I got to keep doing, doing, doing in order to God to love me. You've got it all backwards. Don't live that way. We talked about that a few weeks about the treadmill. Get off it. I mean, how is it good news that God waits to love us until we reach an unattainable standard of righteousness. That's not good news. Brian Chapel. then he goes on, he tells a story of friends of he and his wife whose son in his middle teens rebelled against them and rebelled against God. And for four years, the son protested the innocence of his conduct. He made innumerable promises to straighten up. But each excuse was unjustified and each promise was broken. So much pain and embarrassment and discouragement had been inflicted on the parents that the mom struggled to even love her son. Her heart had grown hard against her own child. On one occasion, as the son continued to protest his innocence and justify this and justify that, the mother just walked out of the room. She couldn't hear it anymore. As the son sat alone on the couch in the family room, he began to go through a family photo album, and, and he saw there the pictures of better and happier days, and they started filling him with an increasing emotion. One picture in particular struck him with greater poignancy than all the rest, and he called his mother back into the room and said, hey, look at this picture. The photograph showed the son as a young child under the approving smile of his mother, the teen now pointed to the photo and said, Mom, when I see this picture, I understand why you struggled to love me. In this picture, hope just fills your eyes as you look down at your little boy, but I dashed all your hopes, and Mom, forgive me for what I have done and for dashing all of your hopes. What did the mother do? Well, her hardness broke, and she embraced him with a heart renewed in love for him. And what moved her were neither protests of innocence nor fresh promises to do better. Rather, she was moved by a statement of absolute desperation. Listen, God's heart is moved. Not when we protest our innocence. Not when we say, I'm going to glue all these good works over here and I'll do better the next time. That's not what moves God's heart. But when we cry out to him in desperation, God's heart is moved. Do you need to do that today? You've got the excuses. Oh, may this truth about sin and your sinful condition be hope-giving and life-producing. For all this bad news about our true condition, there is a remedy, namely the righteousness of God. Have you received that? Do you live in that? Each day as you live out the gospel, uh, we're going to explore this even more beginning next week. Let's pray. Father, as we, we consider this passage, 
as we're going to, to sing. It's amazing. We stand amazed that you would love us, a sinner unclean, and that you do. And you don't say, shape up before I love you. You just say, come to me, brokenness. Come to me and, and stop talking about all your good works and just simply accept what I want to give you. And that's a message certainly for, for anyone here that doesn't know you, but even for those who know you, we fall into the trap of trying to earn your affection by doing this and not doing that. It's not where you want us. We stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. For that's the only thing that meets your standard. May we walk in that truth, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.